morning. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marilyn. Let me, uh, let me pray, and then we'll uh, think about the passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word as ever. Thank you for uh, the different genres, types of literature we find in the Bible, from narrative to apocalyptic literature to gospels to poetry, and, and here to letters written by uh, one sent by you that he might build up the church. Lord, we long to be built up uh, by you through your word now, and so encourage us, uh, no matter what point in our journey of faith we are today, that this would be an instructive and meaningful and helpful time, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to read a list of names uh, to you, 24 names in total, and after I read them, I want you to turn to your neighbor, if you've got a neighbor nearby, and uh, I want you to take a guess at what these 24 people have in common. Here's the list. It's also on the screen. Elizabeth Mendenhall, Mary Ann Clark, Thomas Roney, Elizabeth Roney, Edward Clare, Emmeline Clare, James Roney, Sidney Roney, Maria Springer, Hamilton Graham, Mary Graham, Emmeline Graham, Catherine Gilmore, Isabel Tunis, Eliza Pennock, Hannah Lamborn, Mary Lamborn, Rebecca Marvel, Mary Graham, Charles Schultz, Aseneth Schultz, John Springer, Edwin Gibson, Clementine Gibson. Turn to your neighbor and see if you can guess what they have in common.
Well, besides some of them having funny names, these 24 people were the founding members of a new church organized formally on Sunday, the 1st of November, 1862, and no prizes for guessing that new church was the Kennett Square Presbyterian Church. Either you guys are applauding because we have a church or you got it right, so one, one of the two. So as we, uh, we hosted here on Tuesday night the historic Kennett Square Speaker Series talk that Bo Wright did a great job with uh, about building and sustaining beautiful community here in our town, I was thinking about how this church is one of the few institutions that's been around for almost the entirety of the history of our town. Because history, history tells us that Kennett Square was incorporated in 1855 by the early 1860s, the town had a population of just five to 600 people. Uh, there were only two religious groups in the town of that, at that time, the Methodist Church and the Hicksite Friends, which was a liberal branch of the Quakers. And then in May uh, 1861, the Reverend David Moore, who was the pastor of Lower Brandywine Presbyterian Church down there just across from the entrance to Winterthur, he began visiting Kennett Square on Sunday afternoons and holding services. At that time, there was only one recorded Presbyterian living in the town. Uh, Moore held these afternoon services for a year until the arrival of John Moore, uh, John Gilmore, a friend of Moore in May 1862. It's after John Gilmore that the room below us is uh, so named. And Reverend Gilmore was invited to undertake pastoral work in the town, which he agreed to do. However, he didn't expect to uh, stay beyond the summer. He, he preached his first uh, sermon in the Borough Hall that May to a congregation of 20. Soon after, a Sunday school began, the numbers increased. And then at the fall meeting of the presbytery, a petition signed by 58 people in the town requested that the presbytery organize a church in Kennett Square. That request was granted and the church then was formally organized in the town hall on Saturday, the 1st of November, 1862. Now, I can imagine when those first uh, 24 members, together with the Reverend Gilmore, met for their first official service on the 2nd of November, 1862, there was a fairly large sense of, of excitement and anticipation. God had given them a vision to plant a Presbyterian church in this town. I don't know what passage the Reverend Gilmore preached on that morning. It would be interesting to know. But at the end of that service, it's quite possible, after all the hard work that it had taken to become an organized church, that someone might have said, okay, well, what now? What are we meant to do? What is God's calling on this church? And while their context was different and the way it would get worked out was different, the answer to that question was essentially the same answer to that question for us today, which we could say is Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 that Marilyn just read for us. This passage is certainly not the only passage we can go to in order to understand God's call on the church, but it is a primary one. It, it sort of serves as a manual as such, for what we do as church and how we relate to each other. And in many ways, it builds on the passage that we looked at last Sunday uh, from Ephesians 2 into Ephesians 3, how God has not only reconciled us to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus, but he's reconciled uh, us to one another through the cross of Jesus, breaking down the walls of hostility that exist between 
all sorts of different people. As we saw last week, this unity and diversity in the church, this fellowship of difference, that is E-N-T-S, is intended by God to be the grand witness to the world of the truth and the beauty and the glory of the gospel. So in light of that, here's what Paul tells us his, our calling is. This is our sermon in a sentence today, that Christians are to maintain unity as they mature in love and what we'll call gospel gossip. Christians are to maintain unity as they mature in love and gospel gossip. We'll think about this by looking at the behavior of God's new community, the unity of God's new community, and then thirdly, the practice of the new community. First of all, then, the behavior of God's new community. Look again at verses 1 to 2. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, there's a particular word in these first two verses that's crucial to notice if we want to get Paul's overall purpose in this section, if not the whole letter, and it's the word, therefore. Anytime you see a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. And here, Paul is essentially saying, because of everything that I've just written in the first half of this letter about who God is, about what he's done for you through Jesus Christ, who you are now because of Jesus, here's now how I want you to live. So he makes this move from theology to practice from the new community to the new standards expected in that community, from doctrine to delightful duty. Here's what God has done. Now here's what you must be and what you must do. And the connection between those two things is highlighted in another word in this, these first two verses. It's the word worthy. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Practice Resurrection, which is uh, on, on the book of Ephesians, says that the whole letter to the Ephesians pivots on this one word. And Peterson explains how this word worthy is really a word with a picture in it. The, the Greek word is the word axios, which at its root kind of means a set of, of balancing scales, the kind of scales with some sort of pans on, on either end. So, for example, you'd place lead of a certain weight in one pan, and then you'd measure out flour or whatever else it is you want to measure in the other pan until the two pans are in balance. So when the flour in one pan balances a lead weight of one pound in the other pan, you know that you have one pound of flour. Two items then, the lead and the flour, are then axios. They're worthy of each other. They have the same value, or in this case, the same weight. But the items balanced by Paul on the Ephesian scales are God's calling on the one hand and our living or our walking on the other. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So that when our walking and our calling are in balance, Paul says we're whole, we're mature, we're living in a way that matches how God has designed us to live. We walk worthy of our calling. Now, to walk worthy of your calling, you've got to know, well, what is your calling? And, and Paul says, well, that's what I've covered in the first three chapters of, of Ephesians. So rather than just read all of those, let me give you the very brief Cliff Notes, Spark Notes version. It's basically this, that God has called you 
by saving you, by rescuing you, by forgiving you, by adopting you, all by the sheer grace of God through Jesus into a new community that loves one another for Jesus' sake. That's who we are. This is us. This is our identity. This is our calling. None of us is a Christian. None of us is a member of this church because we deserve it, because we're smarter than other people. We're holier than other people. The fact is none of us deserve it. But God has called us by his grace into this one body through Jesus. That's, that's our calling. So what does a walk that's worthy of that calling look like? I didn't quote it in the sermon last Sunday, but those of you who are here may have noticed the quote in last week's bulletin was a quote from Don Carson that I'm never shy to bring up. Uh, Carson says that given all the different differences in our lives, all the things that could divide us and that certainly divide our society right now, Christians are natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. The, the natural thing to do given our differences would be to fight and to bicker and to argue and to ignore and to degrade one another. But Paul says that that wouldn't balance with your spiritual calling. God has given you everything that you need, all the resources you need by his spirit to live a different way. So Paul says here, you'll live a life that balances with your calling by firstly being completely humble. Humility in the Bible is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less because you're so focused on seeking to serve and to love other people. Secondly, he says, not only are you humble, but you're gentle. Some translations word that as the word meek. But both of those have the sense that you're strong, but you control your strength such that you use it for the benefit of other people. So an axios life is humble, it's gentle, and thirdly, patient in that we bear with one another. We bear with people who might naturally aggravate us or annoy us. We, we hang in there with people with whom we disagree. And all of this, Paul says, is done in love. This is the behavior of God's new community. This is us. Well, why is such behavior necessary in God's new community? It's necessary, again, picking up from last week, because it maintains the unity of this new community, this unity which is the grand witness to the world of the gospel. Look at verses 3 to 6. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul here lifts the, the indestructible unity of the church, uh, uh, lifts it up by his seven mentions of the word one. It's hard to miss, right? There's one body formed by the one spirit. There's one hope, one faith, one baptism because of the one Lord, referring to Jesus. And over all and through all and in all of his church is the one God and Father of all. Paul shows us here how the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are inseparable in their ministry to us and for us. But here's Paul's primary point here. It is, he says, because the church's unity is rooted in the Trinity, it's, it's eternal and unbreakable. So he's building again on what we saw last week in Ephesians 2. We don't create this unity and diversity in the church. God's already done that. He's the creator. He's the builder. He's the one who's, 
who's done that through the work of Jesus and the cross, demolishing the walls of, humility, of hostility that might exist between us. But now Paul's adding to that idea by bringing in the Trinity as the very grounds of our unity. So as John Stott put it, he says, it's no more possible to split the church than it's possible to split the Godhead. Now I know quite a few of you have been in this church or other churches for much, if not most, of your life. And so some of you are maybe thinking to yourselves, is Paul trying to be funny here? The church's unity is eternal and unbreakable. Paul, have you not been around the block a little bit? Is your head in the sand on this? And the answer, of course, is no, his head isn't in the sand. Otherwise, he wouldn't have started this section by commanding them to make every effort to keep the unity of the, of the Spirit. Paul wants us to know that this unity of Christ's church is indestructible. However, we're given the responsibility to maintain it visibly to a watching world. We're to preserve in real concrete relationships of love this unity created by God. We're to demonstrate to the world that the unity we say exists indestructibly is not a pathetic joke, but a true and glorious reality. Now, like any church, this one has, there have been times when this congregation has maintained the unity of the Spirit well during its history of 159 years and times when this church could have, shall we say, done a lot better. Times when the members of this church have walked worthily of their calling and times when this church could have been a contender for the poster child for strife and disunity. None of us can change what's happened in the past, but this mandate from Paul, relevant to 28 people 159 years ago, is of course still relevant to us today. We're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 159 years of existence is no guarantee of anything for the future. I, I thank God for the unity that we have had for the 13 years I've been here. But the only way we're going to maintain that unity is through what Paul says here is the way of walking worthy of our calling, through humility and through gentleness and through forgiveness and through forbearance and through love. The only way you and I will live that way is if we do keep our life in balance with our calling. Now, of course, we're not on our own in this axios life because to maintain unity like this is, is a supernatural thing. We can't do it on our own. It's no easy matter, and God knows that. So look at what he's done to help us, verses 7 to 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Jesus lavishes on us, lavishes on us grace in the form of gifts to help us serve one another as we seek to maintain unity. And to back that statement up, Paul then quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 68. There's a whole sermon in the, in the reason why Paul might have quoted from this. But for, for now, I just want us to see this, that if you were to take the time to read this psalm later today or this week, you'll find that Psalm 68 is a call from God's people to God to come and rescue them and vindicate them again, just as he had done in the past. It celebrates how God had led his people through the Exodus to Mount Sinai such that the mountain trembled and kings were scattered. And how from Mount Sinai, 
They went triumphantly with God to Mount Zion, his holy place, leading captives in his train. And Paul takes this psalm and he sees it as a foreshadowing of what Jesus has done. So that now the he quoted from the psalm is Jesus. Another indication in the New Testament that Jesus is divine. He's God in the flesh. But his ascent is the ascension to heaven having first descended to earth to be our champion, to fight the battle against our, the great enemies of sin and death, a battle in which he died, but then he, he rises pay, paying for our sins. But then having risen and then 40 days later ascending back to heaven, he does so victoriously, having taken sin and death captive and having done all that was necessary to make us alive, to create a new humanity, a new community, to break down the wall of hostility, so that natural enemies can love one another in his name. But as Paul draws in Psalm 68, it's not just the taking of captives that interests him. It's the giving of gifts. Because Paul wants us to see that part of Jesus's no-holds-barred commitment to helping us maintain the unity in the church, to walk in a way balanced with our calling, is the giving of gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament tells us that the victorious Jesus has given spiritual gifts to every Christian. If you're a Christian, God has gifted you, given you ways in which you can serve and help the church. But here in verses 11 to 13, Paul's telling us that he's thinking of specific gifts that Jesus has given for the maintaining of unity, gifts that shape the practice of this new community. And here we're on to our third point, the practice of this new community. Verses 11 to 13, look at those with me. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, one question often asked about this particular, these few verses is why does Paul restrict himself to just these few gifts rather than as we see elsewhere in the New Testament a a more a wider range of, of gifts that are mentioned elsewhere what is it that holds these particular gifts together and what holds these gifts together is that they're all gifts to do with the ministry of the word God's word scripture and the gifts here are not the spiritual gifts per se notice but those exercising the spiritual gifts. So to enable the church to maintain unity, to walk in balance with her calling, Jesus has given the church gifts, namely those who preach and teach the word. But notice that that gift is not an end in itself. Look at what Paul writes. The gift of pastor teacher is in order to equip the church for works of service or ministry. And what's the purpose of those works of service? So that we may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of Jesus and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, that's a lot of words there in terms of Paul's purpose, uh, end of the purpose stage. But, but let me kind of try to simplify it by talking about a phrase that we've used for a good decade now around here to help us think about ministry and the phrase, which comes from the title of a book that a number of us read together uh, about 10 years ago, is, is the trellis and the vine. This is going to sound familiar to some of you. But in the, in the book of that title, the authors explain how, how the vine refers to the work of any Christian ministry 
where we speak uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of God's Spirit to one another such that people are gloriously converted to faith in Christ, where they're changed and where they grow into maturity in the gospel. And so as Jeremy and I preach, as, as we all study the Bible together in growth groups or other groups, as we speak a word of encouragement from Scripture to one another, we are essentially planting and watering and fertilizing and tending the vine. That's vine work. But just as some sort of trellis is needed to help a vine grow in your garden, I'm reliably told this by those of you who are gardeners, uh, just as a trellis is needed to grow a vine in the garden, so Christian ministry and discipleship vine work needs some support and structure. It may not be much, but at the very least, you need, we need a place to meet, we need Bibles to read, some structure of leadership. And every church has some kind of trellis that gives support and shape to the work. So 159 years ago, those 28 people elected two amongst them to serve as the first two elders. Within several years, they had their own building. Over 159 years now that the trellis has sort of grown, you know, management and finances, infrastructure, organization, all these things become important and more complex as the vine grows. But here's the ever-present danger in any church. Trellis work can easily take over from vine work. Our focus becomes primarily about committees and programs and structures, and we forget that the reason the trellis was put in place to begin with was to support the vine. Paul's point here is that it's through vine work, it's through discipleship, it's through word ministry that we grow into this greater unity and greater maturity. So the Bible is always calling us back to vine work. I think one opportunity that the pandemic has provided us with has sort of been a reset for us, whereby we've been able to think of ways that possibly some trellises might have been distracting us from the vine work and how do we get the focus right again? I think that's a, a, still a work in progress. At the same time, I, I don't want to say that the trellises are un, unimportant. To be honest, actually, I think our vine work right now is suffering a bit because we had people serving in trellis work prior to the pandemic that have been slow to come back into those roles. And so some of our vine work is struggling because it doesn't have the necessary support and structure. So it works both ways. But Paul's reminding us here that the reason you have pastors and teachers is to disciple you through the word so that you can disciple others through the word. That the reason Jesus gives the church pastors with a capital P is to equip you to be a pastor, a pastor in the pew, a pastor in your home, a pastor with your neighbors and in growth groups. Some of you may recall me mentioning a few weeks ago that this current Christianity Today podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill about Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And in the most recent episode, the, uh, the host interviews the writer Andy Crouch. And Andy Crouch has this great description of this sort of pastoring one another, this one-to-one -one discipleship fine work that we're talking about here. Here's what he said. He said, we know that the way we're formed is by proximate, inescapable encounter with another person who deeply loves us, who's willing to let us be vulnerable in their presence, who themselves is willing to be vulnerable in our presence, and who calls us to a renovated life. That's the way that anybody changes. Or as Paul puts it here, as we each do our role, 
we're built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of Jesus and that we grow in maturity, attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, Paul finishes up this passage by showing us two things about this vine work. Firstly, it's as we tend the vine that we guard our unity by protecting ourselves from false teaching. Look at verse 14. Then we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Paul told us at the beginning of the passage that we maintain unity through how we relate to one another, humility, gentleness, forbearance, forgiveness, love. Here he's telling us that we guard our unity by dis- discipling one another through the word that we seek to increasingly become a Bible-reading movement so that if your pastors start to stray, you know it because you're reading and studying the Bible too. So we steadily become more saturated in God's Word so that we know what the essentials of our faith are. We know how to discern between truth and error so that as we tend the vine, as we disciple one another through the Word, we guard our unity by protecting ourselves from false teaching. But secondly, Paul reminds us that this vine work that leads to Christian maturity is a team effort. It's a community endeavor. Look at verses 15 to 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul here brings the two engines of unity together, truth and love. Literally, he says, truthing in love, and says, as we speak God's truth and as we love one another, that's how we grow into maturity. But notice that this growth happens with us in connection with each other, that the body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament with each part doing its work. And you know what that means? It means that our growing to become more like Jesus is not fundamentally about each of us just having a regular, personal, private, quiet time. Now, please don't misquote me on this. Don't be telling your Christian friends your pastor said the quiet times are somehow wrong. That's not not what I'm saying. Quiet times are a good thing. Doing the daily prayer project twice a day is a great thing. In fact, if you started doing the daily prayer project when we launched it a number of months ago and you've kind of slacked off a bit, let me encourage you that the new edition starts today. This will be a great time to get back into the practice. But Paul's telling us here that Christian maturity comes not primarily by what we do alone, but by what we do together. That's why we place a high value on intentional relationships here. That's why we've been encouraging every person to make, a renewed prior, make it a renewed priority to be here on Sundays, and that's health concerns prevented. I'm talking to you on the camera right now, and to be in a growth group and to, to read the Bible or another book, like all those free copies of Gentle and Lowly on the back table, read that with another person, because there's no Lone Ranger version of Christianity. It doesn't exist. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, put it like this, holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. 
The gospel of Christ knows no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. But Christian maturity is a team effort. It's a community endeavor. 1995 film, Mr. Holland's Opus, starring Richard Dreyfus, was about a dedicated music teacher called Glenn Holland, who dreams of becoming a famous composer. He doesn't quite have those gifts, however, and instead makes an impact that he doesn't fully appreciate in the lives of a generation of students in his high school music program. Mr. Holland never does write the musical opus that will bring him fame, but he pours himself into the young players before him, a red-headed girl with pigtails who struggles to play the clarinet, a football player who cannot keep rhythm but needs a band credit to keep his game eligibility, a street kid who is mad at the world but who discovers the beauty of his own soul in music. And as the film's coming towards its conclusion, Mr. Holland is fighting budget cuts for the survival of the high school's music program. And he loses that fight, ends up having to retire. The last day of school, he's cleaning out his desk, and then with shoulders slumped, he walks the school halls for the final time. It's a picture of, of just dejection, reminding us of a, a life spent without a dream fulfilled. But as Mr. Holland walks, he hears noise in the auditorium. He goes in to see what is happening, and he faces a packed auditorium of students and alumni thundering an ovation and chanting his name. That little girl with pigtails is now the governor of the state, and she addresses Mr. Holland from the podium, says, Mr. Holland, we know that you never became the famous composer you dreamed of being. But don't you see it today? Your great composition is what you did with us, your students. Mr. Holland, look around you. We're your great opus. We are the music of your life. In the condensed history of this church, those 28 names I read at the beginning are, to be honest, barely remembered. If anyone remembers any names associated with PCKS up to this point, they would be John Gilmore, James Fraser, David Moore, Robert Hunter, Robert Williamson, Vanderveer, Nicholas, James Rendell, George Leukel, Herbert Landis, Frank Ramsey, Paul Ritter, Donald Weber, Moses Pope, Stephen Guttridge, Andrew Smith, Jeremy Peterson. And even those names aren't that well known. But in a, in a way, they don't need to be, because Paul's saying that each of those pastors was and is simply a means to an end to equip you for vine work, to disciple you, to disciple one another into lives that balance with your calling, to minister to you such that we all grow up into unity and greater maturity. So that the music of my life will, I pray, be you. And then in turn, the music of your life will be those in whom you invest and whom you disciple, and whom you seek to encourage in the faith, such that all of us will increasingly walk worthily of our calling into the future of the Presbyterian Church of Kennett Square, maintaining unity as we all mature in love and gospel gossip. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that all that you call us to do is built on the foundation of what you have already done in our lives, that you are the one who has called us into saving, living faith in Jesus. You're the one who've called us into a body of believers that seeks to encourage one another, that seeks together to live a life worthy of our calling. But we pray that we would be a congregation that makes every effort to maintain the unity by your spirit. We pray that those around us would become the music of our lives as we invest in one another and love one another, encourage one another. Lord, we do thank you for the long legacy of this church, its presence in this town. But we do not want to rest on the laurels of history, but long to see you work in you in our midst and through us in this community so that the world may see the glory and the beauty of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.